This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Let me ask you something. Are you looking for ways? Of course you are. You're looking for ways to earn extra income, right? Well, Interactive Brokers Stock Yield Enhancement Program lets you earn extra income on fully paid shares of stock in your brokerage account. Here's how it works. Interactive Brokers lends your shares to traders who pay interest to borrow them and you receive 50% of the earned income. It's that simple. Open an Interactive Brokers account today and start earning extra income. Learn more at ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Some of those old adages still working. Sell Rosh Hashanah, and, well, what about buying Yom Kippur? Market sell-off deepens as the Fed grows more hawkish. Some buying opportunities are emerging, and our guest today is Chris Vecchio, head of Futures and Forex at Tasty Live. All this and much more on episode number 835 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Well, welcome to the September doldrums. Yep, here we are. So interesting how seasonality seems to work sometimes and sometimes not. Right now, seasonality is working pretty well. We talked about this over the last several months, right? Talked about how August and September are a bit squirrely. That's what I used as a terminology to describe it. And that is exactly what is going on right now. We're seeing that the markets are trying absorb to absorb all the... The, the, the issues regarding the higher interest rates and the Fed being hawkish and the question about earnings and maybe a little bit of a deflation from the AI bubble, all the things that are going on. We talked about this concept a few weeks ago about sell Russia Shutter and buy Yum Kipper. And again, it's kind of a little bit weird how this seasonality seems to work in some of these things like uh, a Santa Claus rally, right? Or how about the, the small cap effect, you know, the January effect that happens oftentimes in the beginning of the year or... Uh, sell in May and go away, all these different kinds of things that are catchphrases and catchy sometimes do have some some rooted, uh, I, I guess, uh, reasoning why they work. So what's happening right now is really a combination of a few things. We're, we're, we had a, a Fed blackout period, no talking, talking up the markets. We're at the end and past earnings season. And, you know, we're going through this whole entire process here of trying to understand how we, as an economy, both domestically and in the U.S. and, and internationally, how we are going to fare with these higher rates. So that's what's going on right now. The good news is that if we do see that the seasonality holds, we're getting closer to a better seasonality for the bulls heading into the end of the year. Just uh, for a moment, for those of you that are new to the show, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you, well, hello. How are you? I'm Andrew Horowitz. Uh, I am the president and CEO. I'm the chief investment officer at Horowitz & Company. We've been doing this for many, many decades and uh, actually uh, running this show. This is the oldest and the longest running independent financial 
uh, investment podcast ever, all the way back to 2007. So it's been a really couple of, uh, I would say, a really interesting couple of months that we have been looking at. Uh, one thing, uh, really cool news. This is really cool. Uh, here at the offices, down here in Fort Lauderdale, with the teams outside the offices and the, the programmers and all the different uh, designers, we've been working on the implementation of what I, I guess what I would call a state of the art, uh, I guess a cloud, state of the art cloud based portfolio management and reporting system. And 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 the team is, I mean, that we're working with is, is absolutely amazing. And I've been working on recently, more more recently, on the final review. And um, basically, clients are going to have a brand new secure portal where they can access all their portfolio information, their performance cost basis. Um, asset allocation, nice charts, dashboards, all this really cool stuff there, right? So all of our clients that are listening, we're going to start to roll this out over the next couple of months. We already have a, a, a beta group that is testing out and checking out the different functionalities and things that you could do with it, like breakdown, uh, for example, gains and losses per investment, per sector, per asset class. You could kind of mix it and chop it and dice it and slice it and do all sorts of of different things. What one more reason to become a client of Horowitz and Company because this is just the next level of, of what you can look at. It's it's uh, good for. Um, I mean, I, we haven't tested really on mobile as much yet, although I do know it does work fine on that. But our, our testing has been just the core engine uh, design, and it is really beautiful looking. It is slick, and it's great. So kind of cool. Um, and don't be shy, by the way. Now more than ever, it's a great time to get your financial situation in order and, and ready for whatever the future holds, because there is going to be a future. Let's just say that. <laughs> Can't argue with me on that one, right? Let's talk about the Fed for a second there, for a moment, because we have to, because what they talked about this week was pretty much, I would say, I think it's, I'm trying to really make sure that I'm not just over, over overselling this. I think it's pretty much exactly what we talked about on DH Unplugged last week, as well as uh, the Disciplined Investor last several weeks. And the idea was that there is a um, a Fed that, that needs to come to the table and explain to all of the, um, you know, all of, of the players involved exactly that they are going to be significantly st uh, sturdy with their belief that they are going to get inflation under control. And at the same time, that means what? Well, that they are going to have to work hard at convincing everybody in the marketplace that they're serious. Because pretty much everybody said, oh, they're, they're pretty much done and we're going to have some rate cuts in the future. The fact is the Fed came in and as expected, he kept rates at the same level that they were, but he came in hawkish. As a matter of fact, probably even more hawkish than I thought. On DH Unplugged, John C. Dvorak asked me, you know, what do I think is going to happen? I said, listen, he's going to be hawkish and he's going to come in. He's going to try to self-correct What's gone on recently, the wealth effect needs to be deflated a little bit. We need to really deflate the whole consumer a bit. Housing needs to come down a bit. doesn't have to crash. doesn't have to go you know, into the hole like a lot of people think it has to. But it has to come down. And we're seeing a lot of problems in areas like smaller banks. So we're seeing air, uh, issues with areas like uh, commercial real estate in certain areas around the country. Um, and, and, and this is a problem. Uh, but yet the consumer has been... Pretty, pretty confident. Retail sales down a little bit, yes, and we see the confidence of builders come down 45 from 50. Uh, that's a big number on the NAHB last week that we saw. We're seeing that the the 
projections for GDP are still holding. All these things kind of brought together. You got to believe that the Fed has got to be a little bit more hawkish than they were. Now, several comments by Powell in the press conference, I guess, spooked investors pretty much when he said that no longer or, or, or that the that the base case of their thesis of the economy is not a soft landing. And the, the, he, and the other thing that, that really freaked people out, I think, is that the long-term rate projections are showing higher for longer. Everybody was like, hey, you know what? Uh, no more rate cuts, rate, rate hikes, and they're going to cut next year. I, I don't think so. Again, what we talked about on the Asian plug, I don't think anybody should get so excited about this, this idea that there is going to be um, a specific cut very soon. It just makes no sense at all. Um, and I'm not, su- I'm not surprised with all of that as the economy in the U.S. is still plodding along, right? Even after the big rate hikes, 10-year yield, 10-year Treasury yield is, is, is you know, approaching 4.5%. We see oil skyrocketing over the last month or so. We saw all the, all the moves of the market saying pretty much, you know, giving the big F you finger to the Fed saying, you know what, we don't care about rates and discount uh, valuation, you know, discount uh, dividend models or, or looking at the forward um, projections of companies assuming a, a you know, a, a risk-free rate of return when we put it on models. And, oh, no. And the, you know, capital asset pricing models. No. And all these things like, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter about rates. We can have a PE of 21, according to Jeremy Siegel, says it's just a reasonable number. In an environment where we've seen the fastest increase in interest rates, no, uh-uh, that's not the case. That's why our clients' portfolios have been backed off. Now, that doesn't mean we're exempt, but we are cautious. And by being cautious, you know what that allows us to do? That allows us to keep some powder dry in things like alternatives and in gold and silver, for example, maybe a little bit higher cash that's yielding a decent amount these days. Those things are allowing for us to look for the opportunity as we wade through this this storm. So the 10-year being above 4.5, that should set alarm bells off. It's well over the peak of October uh, 2022 and all the way back to 07 or 08, I think it is. And that's going to pressure valuations. I don't care what the bulls are going to say about that doesn't matter anymore. You know, the data doesn't matter. Remember that in October of 2022, when rates were moving up, moving up so dramatically, and we thought that, you know, they're going to continue moving up. And when we saw that there was a significant amount of movement and and, and push by the U.S. dollar, the price of stocks were about 20% lower than they are now. Now, do we need to get back to that point? Not necessarily, but consider the fact that earnings have not grown and it's just been a, a multiple expansion. We'll, we'll get into some of that discussion, I hope, with my upcoming guests. Now, let's keep talk about what's actually happening in the economy for a minute. And, and I guess the best way to describe this is it's mixed. Some good news, a little bit of bad news. But the areas that the Fed focuses on are clearly still showing strength. That's where the problem is. And this is why rates are flying, right? That's why the dollar is stronger. That's why stocks are down right now. Now, what do I think? I think we're at a pretty restrictive level right now from an economic standpoint. If you pull out any classic economic book and look at what's going on, and right now we are, I think, at a pretty restrictive level overall. Maybe maybe this can be one more hike, 
but we need to wait and see how the how these these hikes transmit, how they trickle down into the economy. We know that there is a time lag because this blunt instrument, as they call it, this interest rate and this quantitative tightening takes a long time to get to you and I. You and I are not necessarily going out right now in mass, right? We're not going out and borrowing all sorts of money. We may do it in a year from now, and that will affect us then. As interest rates change, it takes a while for it to really get into there, into the mix. So the Fed needs to keep pressing on that, uh, that they're going to continue to be strong. And the economy needs to slow down. That will be a great reset. Once that happens and the dust settles and we get better valuations, it's going to be a great opportunity. And that's, again, why having some powder dry in alternative areas of, of the investment diversification is so great. Now, did we miss a little bit on the upside coming in? Yes. But we're also not going to get smoked on the downside. Right? That that's the probability. That's 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 where we that that's where the optionality comes into by doing so. That's where the odds in favor of or against are looking at. There's no guarantees, let's be honest. But the, the fact is that the you set yourself up. You set yourself up for long-term success that way. That makes sense, right? Sure it does. We're gonna get to our guest, but I first want to talk to you about the interactive brokers. Global Trader App, IBKR Global Trader App, which essentially makes investing in stocks and options easy. You can invest in stocks and options worldwide and across cryptocurrencies all on a single unified platform. And you can use fractional shares to invest in the stocks you want, regardless of the price, and put even small cash amounts to work. Scan the global environment, the entire markets for undervalued stocks and identified new investment opportunities by comparing global stocks in the same currency. Plus, make deposits in up to 27 different currencies and automatically convert into the currency you need. And the best part? Enjoy zero commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs with no inactivity fees or account minimums. Put the world in your palm of your hand. Why not? Start investing today at ibkr.com slash global trader. There's a really neat app that you need to check out. Why not? It's, it's not going to cost you anything to go check it out. And you're going to see that you're going to have this great opportunity to do all this research and, 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 and invest all in one place very easily. The IBKR Global Trader app. IBKR dot com slash global trader. And our guest today is Chris Vecchio, and he's currently the head of futures and Forex at Tasty Live, the research arm of the brokerage Tasty Trade. So he has a global macro focus and looks at short-term, long-term. We're going to let him talk to you about this. Craig, welcome back to the show. Andrew, it's good to speak with you once more. Been a long time. Yeah, June 2019. A lot has changed since then. I have a kid. I've moved twice. There's been this little pandemic. What yes. a world. Wow. I don't know what was more impactful on your life, the kids moving or the pandemic. I mean, that sounds like uh, three stressors. Three stressors. Having a child in January 2020, right before the pandemic, oh, yeah. was something else. Oh, my. And then moving out of the city uh, and splitting time between Manhattan and Long Island, which you know very well, yeah. uh, is, is fun. And then ultimately, we're back now in uh, Westchester, New York. So it's 
been quite a few years. Not to get too philosophical or psychological, but you know, I I, I would almost think that for the baby's sake, right? Having a baby during the pandemic for the first couple of years would be better than let's say a six year old, right? That 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 has gone to school for a little while, breaking it up and doesn't know any, you know, and then and then everything has just changed versus, you know, just what they know. But it's, I'm sure it was not easy. You know what? I would say it's a blessing in disguise. It was definitely a silver lining for the whole situation because all of a sudden I'm working from home. I'm there every single day with Mm -hmm. my child. I get to see her first steps, her first words. I get to have every meal with her. That's time that I would have had otherwise. So uh, I like to look at the upside in the situation. Yeah, I had, I had, I'll give you my silver lining and the downside, which is both in the same genre, the same area. The upside was I really perfected my smoking techniques for brisket. The downside is I got gout. <laughs> all that. I've had gout too, and it's not fun. My wife says it's the king's disease. Let's stop with the chocolate and the meat and the red wine, Chris. All right, let's talk about your area of expertise, which is, um, you know, you really focus on a couple of things. I'm going to ask you to expound on it, but 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 currencies and, and, and futures, you know, kind of give me like the areas that you daily are looking at. Sure. So the last time we spoke, I was more of a currency specific person. Uh, at the time, I was the senior FX strategist in a research shop. Now I've expanded my purview to more of a global macro focus. And that can be something as simple as looking at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ could also mean thinking about the impact of uh, Chinese stimulus policies on copper prices or what may be going on with, say, lean hogs. And it's really afforded me to delve into the areas that I find most interesting in the world, the crossroads of economics and politics, and really think about things on the geopolitical scale. So this evolution here the last few years is actually moving more into my, we'll call it my passion wheelhouse, if you will. You know, it's interesting, last Tom, you're on. I mentioned June 2019. The title of that episode was The Widowmaker Trade, which anybody that knows knows what that is, right? Uh, Anybody in the currency markets uh, probably got their ass kicked once or twice on that particular trade, which is basically, you know, looking at, okay, look at the yen versus the dollar, or just look at the yen for that matter, maybe the futures on the yen, and saying, you know, okay, the yen's finally going to start coming up, you know? And, (laughs) And that just never seems to happen, does it? No, particularly not over the last two years. The the yen has been exceptionally weak. It's been bouncing around near its yearly lows. If you look at 6J, if you're more of a spot trader, dollar-yen rates are back close to 150 once more. Trying to get long the yen, even in a risk-off environment, that was 2022, proved very difficult because of some unique circumstances surrounding Japan's economy. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is it's an island nation that imports over 90% of its energy. In the post-Fukushima world where they shut down their nuclear reactors, they become increasingly reliant on those oil and gas imports. And so the onset of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it sends those energy prices spiraling higher. Japan's terms of trades get whacked. The yen gets undercut significantly. Even though stocks are down, you think that would be a good time to get long the yen? Uh, au contraire, mon frère. Yeah. No, that was not the case. And it's still not the case. You know, it's interesting because with regard to the yen, and with regard to this, it, for a long time, it was it was always considered the risk-off currency, right? You you would go right. for a safety trade for the end. I never really understood that necessarily. It seemed to me that that wasn't the place to be, but I, I wasn't going to argue the fact, right? But it just didn't it just didn't logically make sense to me. Can you t- tell me why I'm wrong? Well, it's more about the liquidity aspect of the end. Japan has an incredibly deep bond market. United States, Japan, Italy have the three most liquid bond markets or deepest bond markets right now in the world. And so if you're looking for somewhat of a hedge 
and you need to move your funding from, say, uh, the Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, even a regional currency like the Thai baht or the Korean won, you're going to want to move into something where you know you can get in and out of the position quickly. So the yen has garnered its appeal over the years as a safe haven simply because it's incredibly liquid. So um, is, 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 dare I ask this, is mm-hmm. now the time to get long the yen? <laughs> Well, full disclosure, I'm actually long the yen. As oh, of, uh, my God, your poor wife. I know. Well, you know, there's, there's some things we don't share with our spouses, and I suppose that's one of them. But but here's why. You know, when we think about the situation we're facing right now in global markets, this is nothing to do with the liquidity aspect of the yen or the potential downturn in global economic activity that we're staring down here the next few months. It's more about the fact that Japan really does not want the yen to be this week. I think yentervention risk, as I'm calling it, is quite high right now. <laughs> wait, wait, say that slowly. Yentervention. It's like yenta. Yentervention. Like a, yeah, yentervention. Okay, I like it. Right, you know, we have Brexit, we have Italy, all these different acronyms, Brexit. So uh, yeah, I, I like yentervention. It kind of rolls off the tongue. In any event, we, we've heard actually three times in the past three weeks from various Japanese officials that they are pretty uncomfortable with where the yen is situated right now. Uh, the Ministry of Finance Vice Minister for International Affairs, Kanda, who's basically the currency chief, has warned twice in the past three weeks that they are continuing to keep an eye on the yen. Governor Ueda at the BOJ has hinted that the BOJ itself could be wrapping up its policy review on its QQE with YCC, which is qualitative quantitative easing with yield curve control by the end of this year. There are actually rumors swirling by the time people listen to this podcast, the Bank of Japan Great decision may have come and gone, but the September meeting could very well help lay the groundwork for an exit to such policy. Oh my God, and that so, would that would be that would be something right there. It, it would be incredibly disruptive for global yeah. bond markets, yeah. in my opinion. Right, of course. I mean, because the, the, the amount of stuff. The, essentially, we we all know this, and I'll confirm this with you. But Japan is a as as a as a country operates like a sovereign wealth fund for the benefit of the sovereign wealth fund. You know, they, they're buying outwardly REITs and other instruments inside the, the Nikkei, inside the stock market. They're actively, one, the, the, I think, I think you know, the bond buying is pretty much, uh, out, forget retail bond buying in, in, in Japan. Who cares about that, right? It's, sure. it, it's, it's it, the, the chunks are sovereign and the, and the biggest one is Japan. I mean, they, they kind of consume themselves. It's like a giant cannibalistic um, plant that just eats on itself all the time. I couldn't agree more. And the situation in Japan, you know, for those that don't know the difference between QE and QQE, quantitative easing as the Fed has gone about it, as other central banks have gone about it, is where they make a promise to buy X number of, you know, currency worth of bonds over a specific time horizon. So the Fed may say we're going to buy $100 billion worth of bonds, uh, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, what have you, over the next month. The BOJ situation is where they've effectively said, we want the 10-year yield to sit at 45 basis points, and we will buy whatever amount is necessary in order to keep the JGB 10-year yield at that level. And so that means they may have to go into the market and spend $50 billion worth one month. It could mean that they have to spend $300 billion worth one month in order to keep their yields capped. And so exiting from this policy removes a significant anchor that has helped keep bond yields globally, not just in Japan, but worldwide anchored lower over the last few years. It's a significant risk in an environment where we've already seen treasury yields, for example, in this past week here around the September Fed meeting, 
take a lurch higher to new cycle highs. You know, the thing is that they are not, you know, we hear the word of, of an implicit guarantee, right? Those concepts of an implicit, and a, but this is an absolute guarantee with the yes. yield curve control that they will buy your bonds no matter what really the fundamentals are behind it. Doesn't matter the price, doesn't matter where you're selling from, they will buy it as long as they can keep their yield curve peg plain and simple. And that has profound implications should they back away from that. And I think it's, it's not the kind of policy where you can hint that you're going to exit from it because the market will immediately begin a front run. It begin to push up against those ceilings. Yeah, but then they'll just and come it, in and buy it anyway. They will come in and buy it anyway, but I don't think it's going to be able to last long. It's going to be like a dam that's breaking, you know, uh, in kind of yeah. the Dutch uh, fairy tale kind of sense. They don't have enough fingers to stick in the dike to save uh, to save the town. Hey, 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 there's a family show. <laughs> Let's talk about the yuan. Now, have you been to China? I have not been to China. So in China, they teach you how to say that word, Y-A-U-N, and yuan. Seriously, I'm not kidding about this either. I, I spent a lot of time trying to perfect that, which I still don't have right, but it's yuan. So the yuan, we'll call it yuan, uh, in China has been extremely weak. And that, though, fundamentally makes a lot more sense, right? Because this reopening that we had that happened that everybody was all stoked about back in December has really turned out to be a nothing burger. And the question is right now um, with regard to where we are in terms of this, this, uh, this situation, how is the yuan going to uh, gain its traction again? Or, or is it? This is what makes the situation so unique. When you look at the the current account situation over in China, they've been running a surplus for a very long time, lots of money pouring into the country. And from the textbook FX perspective, if your country runs a current account surplus, you should have opportunity to see your currency strengthen. Yep. But the yuan has been struggling mightily the last few months. You know, they have these draconian lockdown measures that go on for far too long in China, which I think is actually intentional because China wants to, or at least Xi Jinping wants to ring fence China from the global economy in a certain measure and Chinese society from the global economy to a certain degree. And so by keeping the lockdowns on for longer, he accomplishes that task that forces the economy and the people to become more inward focused. But when China reopens, they do it basically at the worst time. We're seeing that Europe is falling closer towards recession. The United States, for all of the fits and starts we've had over the last few years, while we've been perhaps having better economic growth through the middle of this year. It's not exactly like people are feeling optimistic about things right now because of how real wages have moved here since the pandemic started. In any event, China's two largest export markets are not in tip-top shape. And so they open their doors and there are not many customers there. Yeah, this is not so, like a Black Friday rush that they thought was going to happen because wasn't wasn't there also a um, the consideration of well, we'll just open right back up, and what's going to happen is we're just going to go back to business as usual. But what ended up happening really was that a lot of the players out there said, yeah, you know what? We can't rely on 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 China like we did. So let's take our supply chain and move some 100%. to Taiwan, Vietnam, South Korea, uh, Indonesia, uh, Mexico, wherever it is, right? And all of a sudden, China opens up without any fanfare at all. It's like, okay, thanks. Oh, no, Sorry. We got the stuff already from somewhere else. That's exactly their problem. I mean, imagine if your local grocer who was five minutes down the street closed for years and years and years. So you find a new place to shop. 
And all of a sudden the grocer opens back up and you say, well, you know what? I, I like where I'm shopping now. I have relationships at this new store. I'm not exactly going to come back right away. Sure, you may do a little bit more business there. You may pick up a gallon of milk because it's convenient. But in terms of your, your big shopping list, well, now you have other relationships in place. And that's exactly what's happened. Supply chains have migrated out of China and yeah. they're going to continue to migrate out of China because quite frankly, there's not a lot of transparency and there's very low trust right now. You never know what side of the bed Xi Jinping is going to wake up on and say, you know what, we need to lock down once more for reasons X, Y, Z. They have become a less reliable partner since the pandemic started, plain and simple. Yeah, it's, it's a real problem. And and, and I think that that you have the secondary uh, knock-on effect of all these tariffs and restrictions and concerns over about the security and safety of the technology, all that's going on. And obviously the one thing, the shoe that we're all waiting to see if it ever falls is the question of whether or not they're going to make a concerted effort to have a military move into Taiwan for whatever goddamn reason that would be for, you know, just to take over because maybe they're struggling so much economically that they need to, uh, it's almost like a, uh, bring in a strategic partner <laughs> by by force. I think the Taiwan narrative is both underblown and overblown at the same time. I, I say overblown because there has been a great deal of global kickback for what's happened with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you know, not to get too political here, but the fact of the matter is that Russia probably did more to unify NATO than anything the United States has done over the past 20 or 30 years, right? Yeah. And, and I say it's underblown because China really can't risk, and Xi Jinping is very afraid of what happened to the USSR. He does not want to see a dissolution of China because the Communist Party fails to deliver on its stated goals, which have effectively been, you put your faith in us, we will ensure that you have a better standard of living this time next year, five years time from now, 10 years time from now. And for better or for worse, they've delivered that over the past three decades. China's demographics are turning against them, though. Youth unemployment is skyrocketing, oh, over 20%. It, well, how do you know? Because they stopped reporting on it. You know, this is my <laughs> issue with that, right? It, it seems very, it's not very transparent, but their reporting methodology was so jaded anyway, it wasn't a reliable metric. But the fact is, just to the outside observer, you see a, a major government turn around and say, you know what, we're no longer going to tell you the statistic because the stat has been so bad. You immediately jump to the conclusion must be worse than they're telling us right now. Yeah. So sentiment-wise, that's not a positive development. But I could see China wanting to invade Taiwan purely to drum up jingoistic support and revive some national pride as a way to get the country's population shifting away from a focus point of, well, we have all these domestic concerns to, hey, we need to rally around the flag. We need to focus on the fact that we have these external enemies and combatants that don't want us to live our Chinese way of life. And what better way to do that than trying to invade Taiwan and drawing the United States into a protracted global conflict in the Pacific theater. Hmm. Well, let's not hope, hope that's, that's not all going to play out. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, nobody wants any of that. Nobody wants any of that. Right. I, I don't want that. I'm not hoping for that. Certainly my semiconductor positions are not hoping for that anytime yeah. soon. So all of this that we're talking about right now, everything that we've really just touched upon has a very similar common thread. It has a common thread. And that is that country after country after country is doing what they can to deliver to its uh, citizens the most opportunistic level of economic opportunity, right? They're doing it through different ways. But basically what they're doing is that they're all seemingly um, throwing money as much as they can after it some way or the other. So far, would you agree with me? 
I could agree with on that premise. Yeah. So let's kind of fold this into why we haven't seen a much greater uh, move on, let's say, some of the assets that are alternatives to uh, de- debasement of currencies and concept, right? So let's look at gold and silver, I guess, come to mind first. I think gold and silver, despite the price action we've seen here in recent days, have a much higher floor than previously anticipated. I mean, gold and silver, if you think about it, and this applies perhaps more to gold and silver because silver does have some industrial uses. But these are yieldless, cashless, dividendless assets, right? You are effectively banking on capital appreciation when you invest in them or trade with them. And so in an environment defined by rising real yields, nominal yields, less inflation expectations, should theoretically be very bad for precious metals. When real yields are negative, like they were for a good part of the 2010s, it was was actually a pretty good time to be long gold and silver for certain windows of period or period of, of time, because you were seeing the fact that you weren't getting a return on your invested capital elsewhere. Now, all of a sudden, real yields have jumped to multi-month, multi-year. If we were to close at these levels for the month of September, we're talking about the highest real yields that we've seen here in the United States across the curve, five, sevens, tens, thirties, since the global financial crisis. The dollar has strengthened to multi-month highs. This little stew that we're concocting right now should theoretically be some of the worst ingredients you can put into the mix for gold and silver. And yet, they're nowhere near their yearly lows. That could be because of a variety of reasons. Perhaps it's because of fiat debasement and this race to the bottom among every major central bank. And not just in terms of where they're pushing their interest rates, but in terms of how they've grown their balance sheets since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of dilution out there. Money supplies have been expanding dramatically in recent years. But gold and silver here, they're hanging in there, right? They're not performing that well right now. But I would argue the fact that they've weathered the storm to the degree that they have in this environment, where again, everything is basically moving against them, and yet they're standing strong, they're holding their ground. It's setting up a path where we may be bottoming out. We could very well be looking at the next like higher in precious metals. I personally haven't been a fan of them the past few months. I really like them in March, April, May. You're coming out of the regional banking crisis. You're looking down the, the pipe at a potential rerun of the 2011 trading environment whereby we have a U.S. default on the horizon, and that was really good for gold and silver. Coming out of that, we see the default is off the off the menu, and so gold and silver give it back. Treasury yields start rising again. Okay, gold and silver fall back. But now, you know, we still haven't touched those lows that we saw earlier this year. We haven't even approached anything close to last year's lows, even though the environment is a lot less friendly. So for me, I think gold and silver on a longer-term basis, thinking out not just on a short-term trade like the next two months, three months, six months, but two years, three years, five years, they probably have a lot more upside than many other things in this market, right? I mean, the the concept that, you know, if you throw everything at it and it doesn't hurt it, that the potential is that it could do a lot better. I think that really plays out well here with, you know, with what you're saying. I mean, that's exactly my mindset. Yeah. hundred percent. So, uh, one of the things that's been uh, interesting, and we'll t- maybe first we'll talk about fundamentals, then we'll get into this discussion. But fundamentally, right, we are reaching the levels of yield on the 10-year and a few others back from October of 2022. If we all recall the date, magic date, October 12th, 2022 was the, the low, the midday low of the markets, generally speaking. That's the date we look at. 
Uh, and that's when yields hit these levels before. And now all of a sudden, here we are, I don't know, pick a number, 20% higher, depending on what market you look at. But 20%, not, maybe not the Dow, but the S&P and, and, and definitely for the, for the NASDAQ 100. 20% uh, higher from those levels, yet yields are still at those same levels. And earnings are lower on a year-over-year -year basis. What are we all missing? I think there's been a great deal of optimism around the pace of technological change. First off, uh, AI has been a narrative that's infected the market for better or for worse since the start of the year. And quite frankly, so much of the market is just a game of expectations, perception versus reality. The perception coming into 2023 was higher interest rates beget a recession in 2023 guaranteed. And yet yeah. we've chugged along. Uh, you know, it's not set in stone, nor is it sacrosanct, but the Atlanta Fed GDP now growth tracker for the third quarter here in the United States is pointing to growth that's 4.9%. Which, which, which is unbelievable. It's an, it's fantastic in, when you say unbelievable, it's extraordinary. Yeah. You can't disagree. And I point to that one as opposed to say the New York Fed now cast or the St. Louis GDP forecast, because at the end of the day, the Atlanta Fed was nails on for the first quarter and the second quarter GDP releases so their model right now is precisely finely tuned to the situation that we're dealing with. Now, whether or not that continues through the end of the year is another story. We have these UAW strikes. We have a potential government shutdown. We have student debt loan repayments that have restarted. In fact, if you look at the TGA and the Treasury's accounts, the student debt loan repayments have basically brought us back to the pre-pandemic level. So the money has floated very, very quickly here. That's a lot of spending that's coming out of the economy in short order. Sure Those is. are supply chain disruptions. Mm -hmm. That could be setting up. That's, you know, you may not agree with government spending, but GDP is C plus I plus G plus net exports plus G positive coefficient. Government spending adds to GDP. If the government shut down, that's less money going from the government's coffers back into the population. That's that only, but that's only temporary. That's only temporary. Yeah, of course. It's only temporary. But if the government shutdown is two weeks or four weeks, for example, there you go. You have an eighth or a quarter or a third even of the quarter that's out the window and that's less support moving forward. So I, I think the fourth quarter could be stickier, but as it were right now, most of 2023 has been defined by a better economy than everyone and their mother expected, plain and simple. And so you couple that with a resurgent AI narrative, some hope around new technologies. If it was that flash in the pan that was superconductors or advances in fusion, people have had reason, tangible reason, to feel a little bit more optimistic about the future. Right. And as you said, the word narrative is a real important component there because we could have looked at this a hundred different ways. But the point really is here that the narrative is, well, that things are getting better from an economic standpoint. And who cares about earnings? Which, by the way, is usually the other way around, right? Who cares about the economy? Earnings look great. <laughs> that's yeah, that's usually how we look at things. Yes, but also it's important to note that prior to bull market runs beginning, you typically see earnings multiples expansions because people are willing to pay more for future earnings in anticipation of a better growth and earnings environment. So you can't disagree with the fact that since last October, effectively a year ago, the market rally has been a multiples expansion. It's all, first it's all and it's foremost. been. It's always been. If earnings right? are so, lower by 4% on a year over year basis in the last quarter and our Multiple went from uh, 16 and a half to 20, we'll call it, right? Uh, yes. From October to now. Now, that's all it was. And, and, and just to put that in, in I think, plain English, English uh, use of what does that mean as a multiple expansion? It means that there was a shirt on the rack that was $20, and it sat there forever. And all of a sudden, people are saying, you know, uh, I'll buy that shirt at 20 And for whatever reason, 
the tag went to $24 the next day and people are like, okay, I'll pay that too. That's all. Exactly. That's all it is. And it is all this right now, but maybe that was overwrought because now we're seeing that the Fed is going to stay higher for longer. Yesterday was a seminal turning point, I think, in the market with the Fed telling were us you that surpri- they're not go- Were you surprised? I don't think I would call myself surprised. I mean, you just look at the scoreboard. Where was growth tracking relative to the Fed's forecasts in June? It was higher. How about the labor market? Unemployment rate lower. What about inflation? It's starting to turn a little bit higher here thanks to food and energy costs in recent months. And when you add those all together, that begets a more hawkish stance. They don't necessarily need to do more to raise rates on the front end to achieve their goal, but it definitely means that they don't need to cut rates as much as possible. Yeah, and so I, you go from a world where yeah. you're pricing in four cuts to now two. I, the whole the whole idea of pricing in a cut a year from now, I found to be just ludicrous. When in totally fact, when, when in fact that was talk about a narrative that was a push that was the 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 um, that that was the engine of the markets really trying to boost stocks by pr- providing some kind of back-end silver lining that what's going on right now doesn't really matter. What's going on now is 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 kind of okay, fine. Let's, you know, th- we can live with this, but the good news is a year from now and then with the forward looking and all that that's all that was in my opinion because the Fed doesn't even know what they're going to do month to month, much less us try to handicap a year and a half from now. The market and the Fed are both fairly terrible at predicting where interest rates will go any any more than, say, three months out. Yeah. You look at the Fed's forecast, you look at how the Fed funds curve has moved, uh, ZQ, for example. Yeah, we're good at figuring out what's going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. or the next day or the next week. Right. But beyond that, it's pure guesswork, quite frankly. And so the fact that we've banked this equity market rally on the fact that interest rates wouldn't be so high, which you know, it does matter. You think about your discounted cash flow model, right? Interest right. rates are a big component of that. All of a sudden now we're coming to terms with the fact that, wait a second, interest rates will be higher. That means I need to readjust my expected future value of, of cash flows and earnings. And that means I have to take down equity prices a peg or two here. And that's going to be interesting to see what happens actually with housing prices next. Because if, if interest rates stay for lower for longer, then people aren't going to be just all of a sudden saying, oh, I'll wait three months and we'll be back to normal and let's get it going. But uh, the, the other thing I want to talk about, though, when it comes to the valuation issue and how, how markets are moving is one of the things that's really been talked about a lot and starting to come up in, in a lot of studies that I've been reviewing, as well as um, some, some concerning uh, talk about these uh, zero-date options or very short-term options that are out of the money, right? These We saw this back when, when Bill... Uh, who was that guy? Bill, what's his name? Uh, from he was a hedge fund that blew up, um, and basically what they did was Bill Huang. Yeah, Bill Huang. Yeah. They, they basically took uh, out of the money, way out of the money options, right? Bought bought the crap out of them, causing the option sellers to hedge up with shares of the stock underneath it, and created this natural phenomena of just blowing up prices. And that doesn't sustain forever, by the way. And uh, no. we're, we're seeing now these these zero-day options, right? You know, you buy an option today that expires today and hoping for a lottery ticket. And and do you think there's there's a, a significant amount of uh, exposure risk and, and, and by the way, a, a significant amount of movement that is that can be correlated to this new phenomenon? 
I'm going to take the unpopular opinion and say zero DTEs are not as concerning for market structure as some financial commentators are making them out to be, right? If if options and you're worried about a gamma squeeze, so I suppose we should take a step back and define some of these terms. I'm sure your audience knows them, but for the sake of the unanointed, the, the two terms that you need to be aware of are really delta and gamma. Delta measures how much an options price moves or is expected to move for every $1 change in the price of the underlying security or index. Gamma is a risk metric that describes the change in the options delta per a one-point move in the underlying assets price. Zero DTE options have exceptionally low gamma. In fact, it's the lowest, if you look at a decay curve, you're going to find gamma effectively non-existent at the very, very long end of a trade and then immediately close to expiration. So something that has, say, 45 DTEs is going to have very high gamma. Something that has 90 DTE or zero DTE is going to have much, much lower gamma, if not non-existent. So to say that zero DTE... Did you tell them what DTE was? Oh, days to expiration. Yeah, there you go. Sounds so, so fancy for a minute. Right. Sounds very fancy. Uh, <laughs> you know, in finance, we like to make up these words to, I think, make ourselves feel smarter than we actually are. <laughs> in any event, uh, the reality is that you can't really get a gamma squeeze going on in markets if you're looking at zero DTEs. It's very, very difficult for it to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just not how market structure works. Right. So the thing is that this is more of a, it's more of a gambling, I mean, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a fact. It's more of a gambling that hope that there's going to be some kind of big movement by the end of the day in order to, to you know, pull this gain out because it's a, I don't want to call it binary, but it's as close to a binary as you can get with options without being binary. It is. And uh, while I don't think zero DTEs are a problem and they certainly have a place in short-term traders toolkit of ways to operate in the market, I really don't think that zero DTEs are and that their increased popularity is necessarily a good sign for society. And if I could just expand upon that for a second, we've seen that real wages and wages over the past 20, 30, 40 years have moved all that much. Mm -hmm. Income inequality has been growing. You go to college, you take out all this debt. Odds of you being able to pay it back immediately are lower. We're seeing that college is increasingly becoming something that people may not need to go to in order to have the opportunity to achieve their financial freedom right. and achieve their financial goals in life. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like the consensus that has been forming out there the past few years is that the American dream is increasingly out of reach, that working hard, putting in the time, hustling won't get you anywhere. And so the only way, the only feasible way to achieve your financial goals and your financial dreams is to punch a lotto ticket. It could be through crypto and you know altcoins, or it could be simply rolling the dice on a zero DTE where you're buying something that's slightly out of the money and uh, you know has a delta of 0 0.1 I'm, I'm, and then all of a sudden it goes up. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, here's the deal. The deal is that people don't think that they're going to be able to make whatever because they don't want to work more than like you know three years. They think that I, I've been working 40 years in this business or 30, 35 years in this business. It takes a long time. You don't just miraculously make money overnight. That's that's the goal of all this crap that's going on, right? They don't want to put in the work. They want to be they want to be uh, a millionaire so freaking bad, if you know what I'm saying, right? That's what it is. They, they, okay, that's our influence culture, that's our all it is. Uh, Jersey Shore culture, exactly. our keeping up with the Kardashians culture. Yeah, it's it's a problem. But it's not that they say, you know what? I'll put in a good 15 years 
I'll start, you know, it's going to be slow in the beginning. I'll have to kind of huff it and do it. And, you know, God forbid somebody asked me to do something that I don't want to do. Listen, I said from the day one, if, if I got to, I don't know, it's an office environment, but if I got to, I don't take out the garbage, clean the toilet, wipe up something from the floor, I would. Can you imagine these days asking some, some of these people to do that? They'll be like, no, that's not part of my job description. It's like, okay, but you want to be president of the company tomorrow, right? Isn't that what we're looking at here? Just, I mean, that's what it is. I've definitely seen a shift. I don't think that, you know, the idea that people don't want to work, I'm going to push back on that narrative because we see that the prime age working force in this country is at multi-decade highs. So people are clearly looking for work, but there is definitely a subset of the population that feels like employers are blessed to have them as an employee and not the other way around. (laughs) I mean, my first jobs were shoveling (laughs) snow and working in the back of a kitchen and, you know, studying in my free time. My first jobs in finance, I was at the desk at four o'clock in the morning, off at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, studying for the CFA charter after work, right? And you got to put in those hours in order to gain the records. That's my point. That's all all I'm saying. You got to put in those hours. Particularly trading. You have to build out your mental library. You have to sit in front of a screen. You have to be around people. You have to absorb the knowledge, the intangible knowledge that's not in the books, because so much of this is based on feel and, uh, you know, experience. You need time in the pits. And unfortunately, we don't have trading pits anymore, but you need time there in front of your screen, looking at your charts, looking over balance sheets to really understand this. You can't just write a little program and sit back and expect everyone else to do the heavy lifting for you. Full automation. Now talk to me a little bit about Tasty Live and and Tasty Trade and what you're doing there from from the educational standpoint. Sure. So uh, Tasty Trade primarily is an options broker. It was founded by the guys who started Thinkorswim. Yeah, top size. Yeah, a brilliant guy, great guy, uh, pleasure to work with, entertaining, whip smart, I've learned a lot from him in the, the past year that I've been working with him. Uh, and so Tasty Live is the uh, research, education, uh, and I say financial information portal for Tasty Trade. So we do live programming every day from seven o'clock, excuse me, eight o'clock in the morning, Eastern time, seven central, all the way through 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, a variety of programs talking about short-term options trading, uh, figuring out ways to get income out of the market. And when I say options trading, it's not punching zero DTEs, lotto tickets. It's about figuring out ways to enhance your income in the market, looking at selling options, for example, which for a new trader, someone who's not familiar with options can be a little bit confusing. It's not simply like going out there and buying a stock or bond, uh, nor is it something that I think people should dismiss out of hand because there are particular tendencies in the market. Volatility is mean reverting. And with risk-defined strategies like iron condors or uh, call verticals, put verticals, or I think we'll call them call spreads and put spreads, you can cap your risk. You can take statistically informed decisions, quantitatively informed decisions to add a little bit of alpha to your portfolio. And quite frankly, if you are someone like myself who has stocks that he's been holding on to for years, because I'm in my mid-30s, I don't plan on retiring for a number of decades adding a layer of diversification that's uncorrelated with the longer term positions I hold or that I trade, it actually reduces risk across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's kind of go back to what we talked about in the beginning. And and, and you talked about the, the, what what you really dig, right? What you really get into is the cross market correlations when it comes to um, adding in the fundamentals and also in particular looking at things like, um, uh, economics, right? So these cross-market uh, correlations is something that I've looked at for years, right? You know, how does 
the impact of a slowdown in the U.S., you know, potentially impact stocks. And I, I found that this this has evolved and changed over the years dramatically when there was a time when you would look at a recession as, oh, boy, that's a bad thing for stocks. It seems like markets are all excited about that. You know, it's all about the Fed these days. The Fed has taken over. I've been doing this long enough when there wasn't a time that the Fed was front and center of every single discussion of what was going to happen considering the economics, right? Now we got the good is bad, bad is bad, good is good concept. No, before it was bad is bad, good is good. <laughs> it was very simple. You know, you just knew that if there's going to be um, a slowdown in the economy, it's generally not good for, not every single stock, of course, but not good for stocks, right? Whereas now, if we have a slowdown, everybody's like, oh, that's fantastic because we're going to see stimulus, we're going to see Fed dropping rates, we're going to see more quantitative easing, et cetera. Do you find that a lot of this is still working or, or you've had to shift your ways of looking at things in terms of this cross-market and cross-eco, cross-correlation uh, uh, model? Well, two things on that. I saw a great uh, uh, tweet or Z, whatever we're calling them these days from Ben Carlson, who's uh, mm -hmm. a wealth of common sense uh, podcast and author. He said, oil prices are falling. This is a bad sign for economic growth. Oil prices are rising. This is a bad sign for inflation. Interest rates are low. Savers are being punished. Interest rates are high. Borrowers are getting screwed. Remember that everything is bad no matter what. <laughs> and, and that kind of speaks to the whole idea that correlations shift over time. Of course, correlations are not causation. There are a whole number of things out there that are highly correlated that make no sense whatsoever, like the Redskins winning the Sunday oh. before the presidential election. It means that a Republican or Democrat's going to get elected, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, some things really don't make sense, but they just happen to line up. In any event, though, financial regimes change over time. Uh, economic regimes change over time. We've seen this particular case over the past, you know, I'll call it two decades, you know, you think about the Obama years, you have uh, rising deficits and then falling deficits, a central bank that's keeping interest rates near zero. You go into the Trump years, interest rates start to rise, deficits start to expand again. You get into the Biden years. Well, now you're coming off of an era where interest rates are low, but deficits continue to expand. And so what happens in the market changes over that time. Certain asset classes do well, others do not. But at the end of the day, you want to find some sort of underlying economic or financial rationale behind it. And one of my favorite ones right now is the correlation on a longer term basis between bond yields and what's happening with regional banks. Mm. As these interest rates are going up, mm -hmm. it means that many of these banks have these large and growing unrealized losses on their balance sheets. And so even though you have the Fed's lending facility in place to prevent a complete systemic breakdown, the fact of the matter is that many of these banks now are just zombie institutions. And so if you're looking at them from an objective perspective, would they have survived without the federal intervention? And, and, with, and no. without the ability of reclassifying their bonds from long-term holdings to tradable. Right. A lot and of those were hidden, you, are hidden. Yeah, a lot of those are hidden because of this you know, accounting uh, standard where if you <laughs> have them marked as held to maturity, yeah. then you don't need to realize the losses. <laughs> and so now the market's looking at them and right. saying, well, what if we were to mark these to market? What would the, what would the bank's equity really be worth? Yeah. And you look at this and you say, oh my goodness, this is a horror show right now. And so it's no surprise that we've seen bond yields tick up here in recent days and weeks. We've seen the KRE, the regional bank ETF, come under a great deal of pressure, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. Small caps affected by that, too. We're going to have to cut it right there. Chris Vecchio from Tasty Trade and Tasty Live. We're going to have all the information on how to get in touch with you over on the uh, show notes for episode number 
Uh, what do we got? 835 uh, of the Discipline Investor Podcast over at thedisciplineinvestor.com. So make, check that out. Chris, thanks so much for joining us again. We'll do it again, hopefully, uh, uh, in, in a shorter time. Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure. Good right. speaking with thanks. you. Thanks. Well, that's the end of that. That's a wrap. That's the end. Uh, that's quits. Quitting time. We got a holiday-shortened week for some people. Next week, Yom Kippur is on Monday. So have a safe and easy and a wonderful and a uh, just a quick fast for those of you that are, in fact, celebrating. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest. We have one of the SVPs of IB, as we say. <laughs> so he did, in fact, RSVP, so we are okay. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining me this week and every week on the show, The Disciplined Investor. All the information that you want to see is over on thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Also, follow me on Twitter. Andrew Horowitz is the... Twitter slash X handle. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.